Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Politics on the Couch, the podcast that sits back, reflects and tries to make sense of politics, or failing that, has a good old natter about it, which can still help. So put your feet up, but not on the upholstery, please. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome to the couch a journalist and historian whose work I have admired for many years, and I found it especially insightful regarding some of the dramatic and indeed traumatic events unfolding on Europe's eastern boundary over the past year. I'm talking about Anne Applebaum. She's a staff writer for The Atlantic magazine, formerly a columnist for The Washington Post, and a host of other venerable publications in the UK and the US. She's also a senior fellow at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. She's won a Pulitzer Prize, authored a number of books, the most recent of which, Twilight of Democracy, is about the capture of mainstream conservatism worldwide by a new radical strain of nationalist populism. It's about why that happened, how it happened. And it's that phenomenon that I wanted to explore with her on the podcast. Specifically, one aspect of it the appeal that Vladimir Putin has for a certain kind of American right-winger. Now, when Russia invaded Ukraine almost exactly a year ago, we might have expected US Republicans to be unanimous in revulsion and denunciation of the Kremlin. And many were. But there was another shade to the reaction. There was that tone set by Donald Trump, who called Putin smart, very savvy, a genius move. Okay, I'm not going to try and do a Donald Trump impersonation. The US talk radio radicals, the Fox News cheerleaders, they all chimed in and they've been parroting Kremlin propaganda lines about the conflict more or less ever since. Now, there's a lot to unpack in Trump's political debt to Putin, going back to the 2016 election, Kremlin meddling, even before that. But there's something else going on here. There's something about Russian authoritarianism, fascism really, let's give it its proper name, that has a special psychological lure for the Trumpian version of American republicanism. And that intrigues me because, well, when I was a correspondent in Eastern Europe covering NATO enlargement and the early years of Putin's reign, 
The Republican right was hawkish on foreign policy and deeply suspicious of the Russian president. There was always engagement. Putin was someone successive American presidents thought they could do business with. You know, the usual rules of rail politic applied. But the idea that the party of Ronald Reagan, the motor force of Cold War military deterrence, the idea that that would applaud a flagrant Russian territorial land grab with the explicit intention of annihilating Ukrainian nationhood. Well, that wasn't where American conservatism was back in the late 90s and early noughties, that's for sure. If anything, the old style Cold Warriors used to be accused of Russophobia. Fast forward 20 years, and the new American far right has embraced the exact opposite Putinophilia, a kind of fetish for the Kremlin strongman. So, what happened? Now, few people can match Anne Applebaum for double credentials in knowing her way around the politics of Eastern Europe and knowing what makes American conservatism tick. So, I invited her to the podcast and I started by asking her if she was surprised by the Putinophiliac turn that America's radical conservatives have taken. So no, I'm not surprised. Um, it's really a reflection of something deeper that happened in the conservative movement more broadly, and you can see it actually on both sides of the Atlantic, which is a shift from, you know, for better or for worse, being a, a kind of optimistic, you know, in America, pro-American, pro-Western democracy um, movement to being one that feels great disappointment. Um, both with the United States and the American project and with democracy more broadly, and maybe even with Western civilization more broadly. Um, it feels disappointment. It feels disgust. It feels despair. It's a movement that dislikes a lot about its own society. Um, and you can say that conservatives in the 1970s or 1980s were you know, overly pro-American or they were overly optimistic or they overlooked things that didn't go, you know, that were wrong with with Western democracy, and that's all fair enough. You know, it is still remarkable how this shift to the other side, to kind of disgust with America and despair over America has reoriented conservatism until that it's really about something else. I think the modern conservative admiration for Russia is in some way, and conservative, actually, I shouldn't say conservative, I should say far right, because there's these aren't really conservatives in the old sense anymore. It's really a mirror image of the old far left admiration for the Soviet Union, and it comes from the same things. You know, it comes from this idea that there is some other better society out there, or however imaginary, I don't know, traditional values are still upheld and social order is respected and the male-female hierarchies are what they used to be. Um, and everything's still all right. And that's the, you know, the, this idea that there is some better utopian alternative to what we have. It's exactly how the left once misperceived the USSR. I mean, there is still on the radical left, what I think of as almost a sort of a muscle memory of genuflection to, to Kremlin positions, uh, even though sort of communism has has stopped being essentially a, a sort of an ideological proposition in the world since 1991 in any sort of meaningful way as a rival to the capitalist model. But the, the radical left, certainly in Europe, uh, has also sort of swerved towards a, a sort of Putin sympathetic position and takes the view that the Ukraine, you know, Ukrainian nationalism is, is sort of neo-Nazi. And it's extraordinary to see that now absolutely symmetrically on, on the radical right. And in, in, in the piece you wrote for The Atlantic in 2019, I think, sort of documenting some of this phenomenon, you, you, you pinpointed, I think, very interesting um, moment in, in the character of Pat Buchanan, um, at that point where 
conservatism ceased to be conservative in the traditional sense of, of being about preserving institutions um, and started to become more like a, a, basically a radical far-right organization. And Pat Buchanan, you quoted him saying, sort of lamenting the decline of the US, which he described as, uh, in quotes, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial, multilingual, universal nation whose avatar uh, is Barack Obama. And it's interesting, sort of Vladimir Putin's Russia should have occupied the place of the sort of ideal counter society to that when there's there's really nothing about the actual Russia <laughs> as it is, as we've been to it, as we remember it, and as it is under Vladimir Putin, that genuinely projects any of the values you'd imagine uh, sort of Christian radical conservatives in the US would actually w- want for America. No, it's one of the more bizarre shifts, actually. I mean, you know, in reality, Russia is hardly a country of Christian values. You know, it's got one of the highest abortion rates in the world. It has a very, very low record of church attendance. Um, uh, One survey showed that religion plays an important role in the lives of about 15% of Russians and about 5% have actually read the Bible. Not to mention that something like 12% of Russian citizens are are Muslims or some other non-Christian religion. It might, numbers might even be higher than that because the census isn't that good. And there's actually a province of Russia, namely Chechnya, which is part of Russia, although it has a quasi-independent status, but it's part of the Russian nation, which is run by Sharia law. So, you know, the idea that Russia represents some kind of, you know, Christian alternative is actually absurd. (laughs) Nevertheless, they've adopted it as a kind of ideal just because there isn't anything else and because they need um, they need something to admire and something to look up to. Um, as I said, much, much, much in the way that the left once used the Soviet Union. Is there an element, do you think, that it's almost precisely because in the Cold War, Russia and the Kremlin were these sort of emblematic enemies of America, that there's a sort of, almost a sort of a transgressive thrill in saying the world has turned so upside down that actually now you know, the, the Kremlin is closer to the truth or is actually representing a sort of real manly power, whereas America has become so sort of weakened and debilitated by liberalism. I mean, there's this great Trump line, great in the in this sort of amoral sense of the word, as in effective, where he said, um, you know, that Vladimir Putin had played Joe Biden like a drum, uh, you know, with the invasion of Ukraine. This idea that there's a, a really relishing the idea that a democratic America uh, has been embarrassed and wrong-footed by something more macho and virile. And I wonder to what extent that's actually drawing on the old Cold War mythology inverted in some way. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's an element of this that's also shock attention politics. You know, it's as Jane Fonda once posed with a North Korean anti-aircraft missile just for the kind of kicks of it back when she was an anti-war activist in the 1960s and 70s. Tucker Carlson now finds it, you know, likes to create little thrills and shock waves by talking about Zelensky as um, corrupt or whatever. I mean, so so yes, there's a way in which they're trying to show how different they are and so on. You know, the effect of it, of course, is that they're not original at all. They don't come up with new ideas at all. What they do is they take tropes and ideas and sometimes, you know, PR statements from Russian propaganda and they repeat them on American television. Um, but yes, I think you're right. I think they are drawing from some kind of old Cold War tradition. That sense of provocation you know, for its own sake or a kind of, kind of a performance of saying something transgressive that, that gets attention. I mean, it's, it's quite an old technique, but it's also very... Uh, indigenous to the internet age it's a sort of a, it's basically trolling uh, and and in some ways sort of putin 
you know, rather than being a, a sort of conventional totalitarian dictator, it, it, it's a sort of it's a vast troll state with nuclear weapons that he's created. For me, one of the hardest things to try and unpack here, particularly when I look at those um, candidates in the midterms last year who were saying the sorts of things you'd see on, on you know, Russian propaganda television, trying to understand how much of this is a kind of a knowing, cynical gameplay and how much of it is a sincerely held ideological conviction and actually whether you can separate those two things or whether, whether these, these, there's a sort of double thing where those two things are happening at the same time. I'm not sure you can really separate them. I mean, you know, people come to believe the things that they say on television, you know, and vice versa. I mean, you know, if, certainly if you look at the political leaders, I mean, if you look at Putin himself, you know, or you look at Viktor Orban, who uses some of the same tactics, I think they're completely cynical. Putin, at a certain point, started making speeches. I was just looking this up yesterday for something else I'm working on. You know, for the last several years, he periodically makes a speech where he says, you know, American children have to choose from six or seven genders, you know, or there are dozens of genders in America or something like that. You know, he makes up these, you know, really elaborate versions of what American life is like, and he repeats them. Um, as a way of attracting the attention of precisely those people who are upset about gay rights in, you know, in the West. And it's pretty clear to me that he doesn't believe that. But, you know, I'm not sure it really matters whether they're sincere or not. I mean, it's the, you know, just because they sincerely believe that there are six or seven genders or there are 72 genders or whatever it is, doesn't make the fact that they're they're dishonest and they're playing a game and they're, you know, seeking to play on people's despair and anxiety it doesn't make it any better. Well, no. And, and there's this extraordinary phenomenon that, that I sort of try and untangle, which is uh, what I call, or what I might have read somewhere, described as as sort of a hyper cynicism, where actually if you, you cultivate a sort of a willful cynicism and you invite your audience to sort of be in on the act, and it's all a big performance and everyone's lying, um, you get a very particular kind of loyalty, a kind of fan base where you're saying to the people who are listening, who are watching you, and I think Vladimir Putin is a master of this, and I think the uh, American uh, radical or far right um, does it as well. You're sort of inviting your audience into the club and saying, yes, but we're all lying and we're making something, we're being ridiculous, but if you're in on the joke, then you have a special status as part of the club. Uh, and now we're all laughing at the liberals and the sort of soft Democrats who who are trying to argue against us and trying to be rational about this. And we know we're above that. So it, do, do you understand what I mean? It's a very potent kind of bonding device that I think. Yeah, it's a bonding device. I mean, if it's a if it's a politician doing it, it has another effect, you know, by lying constantly, which the Russians do, and they do it and, and in contradictory ways, you know, they'll literally say opposite statements in a you know, one minute and say something different the next minute. You also create a kind of apathy. You know, if nothing is true and we can't know anything and we have no idea what's really happening and we don't have any access to real information, then there's really nothing we can do about reality anyway. We can't change it. There's no point in protesting. There's no point in, you know, campaigning about corruption since we don't really know who's corrupt and we can't find out any details. So it has an effect of creating apathy and making people apolitical. If you're pushed out of real politics because you can't talk about anything real because everything's fake, you know, you stay home and, and watch QAnon videos. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about this with regard to, to faking elections and I covered 
the it was a referendum to formalize the reabsorption of Chechnya into the Russian Federation. And as a journalist, I mean, I'm sure you've been in a similar situation. You go and it's a sort of Potemkin village polling station. Obviously, the war was still on more or less and you know, clearly people weren't going to vote freely or independently uh, and at the time I was quite young and I think I genuinely thought then that this was all sort of being put on for my benefit and the journalists had been brought in and they want they genuinely wanted us in the west to say oh look behold uh, you know there is some democracy going on here and that we were laughing at them because we were thinking well this is absurd we can see this is just a sham and it was only later that I realized well no obviously you know that it wasn't a theater with me in the audience I was a prop on the stage and what you're demonstrating is, look how easy it is to fake democracy. This is all democracy ever is. And look at these idiot journalists turning up. And so the sort of Potemkin syndrome that you get, which is everyone recognises that democracy everywhere is a scam, it, you just sort of debilitate the very idea that you could ever be represented by your political system. Yes. No, the idea, the point is to show that democracy is fake and journalism is fake. And, you know, that these people are just tools of some, you know, some conspiracy and you don't have to listen to them. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Was that, I suppose, also something that then gets reflected with the sort of interference in elections abroad, you know, famously 2016, um, this idea that it didn't really matter whether or not Kremlin interference in 2016 tipped the scales one way or another. What matters more, what serves a sort of a Kremlin purpose more is as long as everyone's talking about it and inflating the sense of Russian power and there's your, you've just sort of let off a great big stink bomb in the middle of American democracy, then the, 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 the sort of mission is accomplished, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I do think they wanted Trump to be elected and there were lots of different kinds of things they did in order to ensure that. So I don't think it, that was only for the purposes of mocking democracy, although that, I think you're right. That was certainly one of the one of the side effects. Um, I mean, of course, Trump tended to see himself mocked democracy because he was such a an obviously unqualified person and um, having him even be the presidential candidate made a mockery of the American political system. And the Russians played a small but not an unimportant role, I think, from early on in his career in, in building him up for that reason. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Democracy is such an, a vital part of the 
patriotic understanding of what America is and represents, to what extent the the people who we're talking about on the American right who have uh, are, are subject to this kind of Putinophilia would think of themselves as despising democracy itself, or would actually think would would rather sort of redefine democracy in some way, which, as you described, would be a pretty bogus way of defining democracy. But they still want to think of themselves as true Democrats because it's a much greater taboo in American society to say, "Look, let's just junk democracy." Whereas in Russia, it became a dirty word in the nineties. So they, they wouldn't. You, no one really feels they have to announce themselves as a Democrat to be legitimate in Russian politics. I, I sense in American politics, they still do. So they, they do have ways of talking about it. So for example, there's this phrase they like to use, you know, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Or they like to emphasize the, in effect, anti-democratic elements of the American constitution, you know, the ones that give louder voices to, you know, the, 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 the way our Senate works, for example which effectively gives more influence to rural voters than to urban voters. And they talk about restricting the vote in particular ways. And this, of course, has a long tradition in American history of manipulating the the rules about voting so that some people have easier access to voting than others, um, or some people have no access to voting at all. So they probably wouldn't say outright, you know, we hate democracy, but they would pretty openly talk about manipulating democracy or pushing the constitution one way or the other in order to give advantages to particular groups or pushing the legal system one way or the other. And they're they're quite open about that. And that's a that's an open goal of what they do. And I think there's also a an open admiration for some of the tactics of autocrats abroad. You know, for most the you know the most obvious one is Viktor Orban has cracked down on the independence of universities in Hungary. And you now have Ron DeSantos in Florida, this is the governor of Florida, who may well be the next Republican candidate for president, openly pushing against um, academic freedom at universities in Florida. They've taken those ideas from Hungary, I think, uh, and, and, and other autocratic states, and they, and they apply them that way. And they're not really hiding that that's what they're doing or denying it. Though, as I understand it, so this is the case in the UK when people are aggressive towards university campuses from the right in this country. They do it under the guise of defending free speech. So they are sort of that is, it becomes it comes camouflaged in a liberal principle, which is free speech. There is a complicated argument about free speech on university campuses that I think we probably don't want to go down that road right this second. But not right now, no. <laughs> Ron DeSantis is doing is something even beyond that. So telling um, universities, you know, or, or schools that they can't. Your, you know, their libraries aren't allowed to hold certain books, isn't really the same thing as the free speech debate as it exists in the UK. You know, it's kind of, it's a few steps further than that. One of the things that really strikes me about this kind of zooming out a bit is things and behaviours such as open attacks on universities and the courts gerrymandering, all the various things that happen. I think a lot of liberal, in a broader sense, opinion, thought they was those would be such flagrant abuses of what was understood to be a functioning democratic society that they were t- sort of taboo and beyond the pale. And if you could point to them, enough people would go, oh, wow, we've really crossed the line here. This is the, the nature of the society has become something very different. Obviously, Trump demonstrated that that boundary didn't really exist uh, for a lot of people, but also... Well, it did, it did exist for some people, though. I mean, it's, you know, there was a revulsion against Trump that has lasted even into the most recent midterm elections. But yeah, you're right that the the numbers of people who were revolted by these kind of obvious anti-democratic actions and behaviors was smaller than we might have expected. 
And then there's this foreign policy element of it, which is that you watch Vladimir Putin. You know, I'm aware that when people make sort of Third Reich comparisons, the, it, it, it tends to sort of degrade the argument a little bit because it's been overused. Mm. But the reality is the sort of the foreign policy playbook from intervention in Georgia in when was it sort of 2008 uh, and then Crimea and you know everything that's been done was actually pretty textbook mid to late 1930s Third Reich expansionism. Uh, and it wasn't that kind of hard to see you know, what the trajectory was here and then the full-on invasion of Ukraine happens. And yet you would have expected that there to be sufficient antibodies in the American political bloodstream, you know, even as far as the, you know, the, the, the radical conservative right, to call that what it is. I mean, it's fascism, isn't it? And so, and yet clearly something has happened that, that all those lessons that we thought were so deeply ingrained uh, in the, the fabric of American society actually they they weren't so deep or the inoculation has sort of worn off somehow well so i think the foreign policy thing comes from comes from something different um i'm not sure it has the same sources and the reluctance to see putin as a kind of existential threat or as a you know as a fundamentally anti-democratic threat and somebody who threatened the you know the security of europe is something that afflicted not just the right but also the left and also the center a feeling the Cold War is over. We left that conflict behind. We've been thinking about other things for the last 20 years. Um, we have this very comfortable set of trading relationships with Russia. Um, in particular, a lot of European countries, not just Germany, had uh, gas dependence on Russia. The, the countries that he's threatening aren't ones that are long-term old traditional allies. So, you know, Georgia isn't a country that has been part of the Western political community in the last century, there was just a an inbuilt kind of um, small C kind of conservative objection to recognizing the change that had happened in Russia. And I, and I think that's really the explanation for that rather than right or left wing politics, because as I said, it afflicted everybody from Angela Merkel to, um, you know, to the leaders of France and Britain up until a year ago, you know, to the leaders of the US and Canada. I mean, so it's not a, it's not really to do with domestic politics in quite the same way. Yeah. And I would add to that also 9-11. I mean, I was in Estonia on, on that day and you know, the, the, the pivot in foreign policy focus, obviously, towards Afghanistan and Central Asia uh, and then Iraq and the effectiveness you know, of the Kremlin in saying, okay, well, we recognize now that all the old foreign policy and security dialogues can be started again from scratch. And uh, a, a sort of, as I remember it, a, pretty much a tacit deal was done where the West NATO would sort of stop complaining or being taking much of an interest in the domestic political situation in Russia and human rights and stop talking about that sort of stuff, uh, specifically with regard to Chechnya, and would be able to use Central Asian bases for the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, and all the heat went out of the briefly went out of the NATO enlargement debate in the Baltics. So that sense that Russia was sort of not solved by the post 9-11 reorientation, but it just sort of became a, a 20th century issue that we didn't really need to focus on that much. Yeah, I think that's right. I think 9-11 was, did seem to cause this fundamental shift in alliances and in focus. And the US was distracted for a couple of decades by the Middle East. I think that's a that's a good analysis. And that's also part of the explanation. Why were we not focused on Russia? Why weren't there more Russian experts in high places? Um, 
why had Russia shifted away from being an important subject for people to study at universities and so on? I think it's absolutely a, um, something that happened because of 9-11. There's this sort of separate then question, which is, again, I remember this being debated a lot and it suddenly came up again with regards to Ukraine, which is something that sort of nurtures the, the Putin apologist faction on the hard right and also the left, which is this sense that there was a pro- somehow a provocation of Russia that, you know, we poked the bear and NATO actually did enlarge, did expand into the former Soviet space. I find it hard to articulate this point for you because I disagree. I disagree with it so profoundly, but it's a very resonant thing that people believe, you know. This was an idea put into our public sphere by Putin himself. So Putin has been saying this. He said it repeatedly over the last several years. This has been analyzed many times. It doesn't reflect the historical reality um, you know, there were, the Russians accepted NATO expansion at the time. The, the push for NATO expansion came from the Central European states themselves. I, you know, I know I was living in Poland at the time that happened there. It was they who felt already threatened by Russia because of actions Russia was already taking in the early 1990s. There's a complicated history to that, but Putin did very successfully repeat this over and over and over again until he, he, he sort of created an alternative history of what had actually happened. You know, if Putin didn't see NATO as a threat, um, if he didn't see democracy as a threat, and if he didn't see the threat of democratic activism inside his own country as a threat to him and his personal power, then there, you know, he should have welcomed the expansion of NATO as an expansion of Western security into his own region. And he should have been getting ready to have a, you know, to, to build on the special relationship with NATO that was set up in the 1990s and that he abandoned. There could easily have been a kind of NATO-Russia alliance. It was offered to Russia. It was a possibility. It was. Um, it could be the basis for Eurasian security today, and he turned that down. So, you know, what what he did was rewrite history in a way that justified his sense of paranoia and, as I say, his fear of the language of democracy and the democratic activism inside his own country. And the requirement to have an external threat that could galvanize his own society uh, at a time when the economic changes were essentially grinding people's, uh, apart from when you had a lot of revenue coming in from the oil and gas, uh, generally stagnating living standards and, and making people poorer. So the importance of NATO or sort of reanimating NATO as this psychological threat to the the sort of existence of a, a healthy, happy Russian society, Russian nation, you know, was so easily remobilized, I think, from the Cold War period. It's just been sort of upgraded. Although to what extent that's actually resonant uh, with Russians in the third decade of the 21st century, I'm not sure. I get mixed reports on that. Yeah, it's very hard to say. I mean, you know, they've spent a lot of effort reactivating fear of NATO. You know, it was if you look at the polling, it was down to almost nothing. And now, of course, it's gone up again. And not that you can trust the polling in Russia. But So when we're talking about the resonance of Cold War rhetoric and what animates public support for democracy or rejection of it in Russia or in the US, my worry is that the whole framework of the argument for a Western model and Western institutions, including NATO, is built, if you like, on a historical parable. It's the sense that Europe went through the horror of the 30s and the early 1940s. Uh, We looked in the face of the totalitarian Gorgon, and now we know for sure where the boundaries of good and decent politics are uh, and what it is we're definitely not going to go back to. Uh, And maybe that knowledge just fades with time. Uh, There's a generational shift and people are going to have to relearn the lesson of the 20th century the hard way. Uh, that's that's my big fear. I think that's probably true, but I think it's probably 
inevitable. I mean, I don't find it surprising, you know, with the generation of the people who remembered the Second World War passing away and with actually the generation of the people who were really active in the Cold War disappearing from, from public life. I think it's pretty normal that younger people don't remember the, you know, the lessons of the past in the same way that people who lived them did. I mean, I do a, a little bit of teaching and I meet young people who were born after 9-11 and don't really remember politics before Barack Obama, if they even remember him. And so you can't really expect them to have the same sensibility and the same reaction to seeing things that look familiar to historians. Um, so I, I don't think it's very surprising. I mean, I think in a way we've been very lucky, surprisingly lucky, and we probably didn't appreciate this when he was elected, that we have as president right now, somebody who is old enough to remember some of those things and who was able to galvanize the NATO alliance and, at least until now, create a bipartisan consensus inside the United States for supporting Ukraine and for supporting democracy more broadly. I mean, Joe Biden is somebody who remembers the Cold War and has, you know, very much grew up in the atmosphere of, of the Second World War. So that generation hadn't quite disappeared, and there were just enough of them around, I think, to make a big difference. But, you know, I imagine people are relearning the lessons now. And we do like to end this podcast with an optimistic note when we can. I, I suggest, I imagine that does at least give us the potential for another generation to come through that can rediscover the, the sort of the thrill of, of liberal democracy as almost as an insurgent proposition to, to counter just the chaos and the mess of, of populism. It, it can throw off this horrible sense that it became a, a sort of amoral, stale technocracy. And we could actually start to get excited about liberal democracy again as something fresh and new. That sounds hopelessly naive, actually, when I hear myself saying it, but maybe it's possible. You know who it's not naive to say that about? If you meet the liberal democratic opposition of Venezuela, you know, or of Iran, or of Hong Kong, you know, if you meet people from parts of the world where they don't have liberal democracy, um, then you will find people who are enthusiastic about it, who understand the value of it, uh, and who are themselves fighting for it sometimes in very difficult ways every day. I'm hoping that eventually they will reinfect us with their enthusiasm. That's a fantastic note on which to stop. But thank you for giving us so much of your time. Thank you very much. Hi there, it's Phil, the producer. Thanks again to Anne for taking the time to talk to Raf. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you found it interesting or have any thoughts about the show, do please tweet us at politics on the. We're genuinely interested in any follow-up questions you have about any of our editions, and we may even do a special one where Raf answers some of those questions. Don't forget to pre-order his book at raphaelbear.com. Thanks also to Out Yonder, that's Y-O-N-D-E-R for the graphics. We'll be back next Tuesday with another fantastic guest. Though I'm having trouble sitting down to edit this edition. Can you guess what psychological phenomenon we'll be discussing next week? Tweet us at politics on the until next time planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.